Father, we do thank you for the depth of wisdom and knowledge that you have in creating the world and in ordaining a plan whereby we might be saved. We don't deserve it. We can never earn it. We can never pay you back for it. And yet you have freely bestowed your love on us. And you teach us freely you have received, freely give. And this last section of Romans is a reminder that in view of your gift to us, in view of your mercy to us, we ought to serve you and serve others freely and fervently. And we pray that you would help us to do this, Father. I pray that our minds will have been filled with biblical truth and that we will have thought of new questions that we need to research, new doctrines that we need to better understand. But God, we pray that we wouldn't leave here simply as Christians with full minds, but Christians with full hearts and eager feet and hands to serve you. And so we pray that you'd speak in Romans 12 through 16 to us now. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Paul has written 11 chapters to us detailing from eternity past into our own life and into our own conversion and into our own walking by the Spirit how the Gospel works. 11 full chapters, so full that at the end all he can do is praise God for the greatness of His plan. And then he shifts gears. It's almost as though chapter 12... 13, 14, 15, and 16 constitute a new book. Chapter 11, those last few verses, seems to be a fitting conclusion to all that's gone before. And chapter 12 shifts gears, and it's almost as if Paul is saying, just like I prayed, remember that Christianity is not just a head thing. It is a head thing. You need to know doctrine. You need to understand it. You need to have truth to cling to. But Christianity doesn't stop there. It also translates from the head into the heart of love for God and for others and from the heart of love for God and others into actions of love for God and others. And so he spends these last five chapters urging us to action. And the key verse is the first verse of chapter 12. It makes perfect sense. After he's just extolled the wisdom and mercy of God, At the end of 11, now he says, Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice. In other words, since God has been so good to you, since He has provided such a great salvation for you, since He has given you His very own Son, your response is to present your body a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God. That's your reasonable service, your spiritual service. That's just what you ought to do. Serve the Lord with your body. And in addition to serving the Lord with your body, He reminds us to serve the Lord with our mind. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. He's spoken of that already. Set your mind on the things of the Spirit. That's one response to the mercy of God. God has been merciful to us. He's poured out His Son's blood. He's poured out His Spirit. Let me set my mind on the things of the Spirit. And let me set my body to action in the things of the Spirit. So because God has been so good to us, we're to think differently and we are to act differently. And He sums that up 
with this phrase, a service of worship. A service of worship. We think of a service of worship as what happens at 11 o'clock on Sunday, and that's part of it. We do worship then. We worship then in spirit and in truth. We worship around the Word and in song and in giving and in confession, in prayer. But our whole life is to be a worship service, isn't it? Our whole life is to be a service of worship. And so I've entitled this last section The Service of God because that's really what he's speaking of. How do we serve God? How do we serve God by serving others? How do how did Paul serve God? And then a concluding just list of some servants that may be encouraging to us. Serve the Lord. How do we do it? Well, first he says we should serve the church. We should serve the church. Verses 3 through 13 of chapter 12. For through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think. In other words, serve the church humbly, but to think so as to have sound judgment as God has allotted to each the measure of faith. Now, why should you be humble? For just as we have many members in one body and all the members do not have the same function, so we who are many are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. What he's saying here is don't think too highly of yourself. Serve the church and serve it humbly because you're just one part of the body. The body has many different parts. Paul goes into this in 1 Corinthians. You're just one part. The eye is not the hand and the ear is not the foot and so on. And so just because you think that your part is important or you really enjoy your part doesn't mean that you need to look down on others in the church who have a different part than you. Serve the church humbly. Romans 14. Romans, well, we're in yeah 12, but he also speaks of service all the way through 14, doesn't he? And 15 as well. We're to serve the church and we're to do so humbly. Now let me just give you an example uh, that more fits with the expanded version of this body example in 1 Corinthians. But imagine, as Paul says, the eye is not the hand and the ear is not the foot, and if the body didn't have all of its parts, the body wouldn't be the body. Imagine taking one or so parts away from your body. Some parts might not be as difficult to get rid of, but imagine not having your thumb, your right thumb if you're right-handed be hard to write this morning, wouldn't it? Thumb's not a part of the body that gets a lot of attention. You don't pay much attention to it unless you hit it with a hammer, but it's an important part. And if you lose it, though it's unnoticeable most of the time, it'd be very difficult to function. Even more so, think about your eyelids. If your eyelids, which you don't pay very much attention to, again, unless you're a lady who puts eyeshadow on them, most of us don't ever think about our eyelids, but what if your eyelids stopped working? What if you couldn't close your eyelids anymore? Well, what would happen? Your eyes would dry out, right? And if your eyes are dried out, then what would happen? Theoretically, I don't know if they'd fall out. Scott could probably tell us, but you wouldn't be able to see very well. And we could carry the illustration on. If you couldn't see very well, you might crash into the table and break your leg and so on. If you don't have little parts of your body that are important, the whole body fails. And so what Paul is saying is you serve the Lord by serving the church. And when you serve the church, you need to look around and see that that guy who all he does is stand and hand out the bulletins on Sunday morning is important. The lady who is there every week, who doesn't say anything, but she's always there, she's consistent, she prays for the preacher 
She prays for her Sunday school class. She's important even though she doesn't have a big job. And the person who is the chairman of the deacons or the pastor or whoever is important as well, but in very many ways is no different than the thumb or the eyelid or the man who hands out the bulletins or the lady who simply prays for her Sunday school class every week. So don't go thinking because you're doing a lot in the church that somehow you're more important. Most of you, if you're here on a day like today, are probably people who are always here. And you're the ones who are the 30% of the people who do 80% of the work or whatever the statistics are. Thank you for that. But don't begin to think that somehow that makes the other 70% unimportant. Serve the church and do it humbly and do it fervently, he says. He goes on in verses 9-13 through 13 and talks about love, brotherly love particularly. Listen to the words of fervor that he uses. We are to abhor what is evil. Not just avoid what's evil, not just disdain what's evil, abhor it, hate it, run from what's evil. It means that there are only about three television channels that you can probably watch with any consistency. Be devoted. That's another word of fervor. Devoted to one another. Not just like one another. Not just shake one another's hands. Not just do nice things for one another. Not just pray for one another every now and again. But be devoted to one another. The people that are in your church family are your family. Particularly if your family are unbelievers. The people in your church family are all you have. And you'll find that out someday when you're on your back. You need to be devoted to them. And they will need to be devoted to you. Give preference to one another in honor, not lagging behind in diligence. Diligence. Be diligent in the church. If you signed up to do something, do it with all of your might. Be fervent in spirit. What does that mean? Well, it means don't just be fervent in your work. Be fervent in spirit. Come to the prayer meeting. Pray with people. Be fervent to call people and pray with them. Be fervent to speak about the Lord when the opportunity arises. Be fervent, not just in your work, but in spirit. Serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, persevering in tribulation, devoted to prayer, contributing to the needs of the saints, practicing hospitality. All of these things are important in the local church. We don't have time to unpack them all, but let me just ask you if you're serving your church that way. There are two churches and then maybe one or two more here represented. Are you serving your church fervently? Do you have to be bugged and begged in order to do what God's calling you to do? Do you do what you do grudgingly? Is there something specific that you know God is urging you to do in your church and you just haven't done it? Serve your church, he says, fervently. Now just a pause here because someone asked earlier about each one being allotted a measure of faith. That's in verse 3 here. And... In verse 3, when he says each one is allotted a measure of faith, he's talking about the body, the body of Christ. So each person in the body has been allotted a measure of faith. That's not a reference to every person in the world, but it is a reference to every person in the body. That's another reason not to look down on them. You may be strong in faith. Someone else may be weak. Paul's going to talk about that. But they have faith in the same Lord as you do. And because each person has a measure of faith, each person ought to serve humbly, and each person ought to serve fervently. So serve the church. You put that into practice even before the end of the day. It means there should be some folks helping clean up today, at the very least. 
Secondly, Paul is going to urge us here at the end of chapter 12, beginning of 13, really all the way through 13, to serve the world. Serve the world. Now, hear this well. Sometimes we could use the phrase serve the world like, man, he's walked out on God and he's serving the world again. That's not what he means, obviously. When we say serve the world, what we mean is serve the people of the world. Love the people of the world. Love your enemies. Serve the people that are in your neighborhood, in your school, in your workplace who aren't believers. You have to have a special eye for those folks and to be specifically seeking to serve them. And he gives some examples of how to do that. Verse 14. Really, verses 14 through 21. Love your enemies. People who don't seem to want to be served. They don't want to be loved by you. They want to hate you and they... Wouldn't mind if you hated them. It would probably make them feel less guilty about hating you. You're supposed to love those people. Verse 14, particularly you're supposed to bless those who persecute you. Someone makes fun of you at work. Someone pokes fun at Christianity. Someone makes life hard for you because of Christianity. You're supposed to bless those people. Pray for them. Do them good. Buy them tickets to the opera. Whatever it may be. Bless those people. Now, the reason why bless those who persecute you doesn't stand out as, as boldly as it should for us is because some of us aren't getting persecuted. And the reason some of us aren't getting persecuted, mistreated, thought poorly of is because we're not really doing what's right. In other words, if you have the same standards about how you're going to do ethics in your company as everyone else does, if you're taking home calculators and pens and paper and print cartridges just like everyone else, and there's no reason for them to persecute you. You're just like them. You're not being persecuted where you work. Either you are under the unusual mercy of God or perhaps you're too much like the world. But as you are persecuted, bless those who persecute you. Then he says, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. We often apply this to the church, and we should apply it to the church, obviously. Someone in your church is hurting, you should be there. If someone in your church is rejoicing, you should be there. But here he's particularly talking about the world and our enemies. If your enemies are rejoicing, if the guy at work who is giving you such a hard time, a daughter who's getting wedding, getting married, you know what you should do? You should be the first one to send a nice gift. Or if the lady at work who's constantly giving you a hard time has her husband pass away, who should be at the funeral? You should. Who should be writing her, not just a quick, we're praying for you in your loss, sympathy card, but writing her maybe seven, eight, nine, ten lines of encouragement. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. We need to be the kind of people who are at the funerals and at the weddings, just like Jesus was. He was not at the wedding in Cana simply because he wanted to perform a miracle, though he did that. He was there also because he knew how to rejoice with those who rejoice. And that drew him into opportunities to share the love that he had for people. It will do the same for you. He says, skipping along into verse 16, associate with the lowly. I don't know who that is in your neighborhood or your workplace or your family or your church. But you keep an eye on the people who are struggling, who need help, who don't have companionship, who are maybe a little bit backwards, and you associate with them. If possible, verse 18, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. 
Again, at work, at school, in your family, if there's a conflict, you should be the very first one to seek reconciliation every single time. You may say to yourself or even say to your spouse, every time something goes wrong at work, I have to be the one to go in there and admit what I did and try to make it right. Yeah. And the reason you have to is not simply because the other guy won't. It's because God tells you to. An unbeliever doesn't want to make peace with all men. He doesn't care. Your job is to make peace with all men. And those who make peace, Jesus says in Matthew 5, are called the sons of God. Because that's what God does. God is a peacemaker. He sent His Son into the world to make peace with us. We need to be peacemakers with others. You think about someone specific, perhaps, that you need to write a letter to, pay a visit to, and be at peace with them. And here's an odd couple of verses. If your enemy, verse 20, is hungry, feed him. And if he's thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Wow. Love your enemies? Heat burning coals on their heads? How does that work? It's an odd verse, isn't it? Do your, home, do your neighbor good so that you can heat burning coals on his head. It seems like Paul is reversing everything he's just said or saying do all these good things so that you can have a sinister motive behind it. And I thought about this a couple of weeks ago, more than that, probably a few months ago now. How can this be? How can he say love your enemies and at the same time say keep burning coals on their head? And I thought about it, and I thought about it, and I think I figured out what he's saying. Love your enemies and heat burning coals on their head is the same thing. In other words, when you love your enemies, they start to feel guilty. They see that you love them in spite of themselves, and they see that they hate you in spite of your goodness to them. And you know what starts to happen? The back of their neck starts to get hot because they start to realize that there is wrath hot coals hanging over their head. This isn't literal burning coals on their head. This is a metaphor. Obviously, you're not supposed to literally dump burning coals on someone's head. So it's a metaphor. And what I think it's a metaphor is when you love your enemies, when you love people who are evil to you, what it does is it creates this weight of conviction hanging over their heads, especially if you share the gospel with them and they know what the Bible says about sin. There starts to be a a, a hot barrel of coals balancing on the top of their head and they know that if they don't do something it's going to eventually pop open and destroy them. That's a loving thing to do to put that barrel on top of someone's head because the people who are most likely to turn to Christ are the people who realize that burning coals are awaiting them. So if you love your enemies you heap burning coals on their head and that's a good thing. You're heaping up conviction so that they might turn to Jesus. Love your enemies second way you serve the world, the lost world around you is to obey the government. Here's a good one. Everyone, every person, 13.1, is to be subject to the governing authorities. Period. Now, who were the governing authorities in Paul's life? Not names in particular, but just title. The Roman Emperor Caesar, right? What do you know just in general about most of the Caesars? Were they the kind of guys that you would want to hang out with on the weekend, play golf with, and say, hey, did you know that I'm a Christian? No. The authorities were trying to kill the Christians. The authorities did kill Paul. 
I saw a picture the other day of the Mamertine prison where Paul was thrown in jail there in Rome. And it was a stone room underground with no windows and nothing but rock all around. Can you imagine being shut up in a room probably a quarter the size of this room with no daylight for months and months and months? No way out? It's incredible. He did. He did. And yet, it's not a place that we want to be necessarily. Those are the governing authorities that Paul is speaking of. Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities. Now, Paul doesn't say that lightly. And if Paul doesn't say it lightly, based on his circumstances, we shouldn't take it lightly. That means that as you go out of this church today and drive along Highland Avenue, what is the speed limit? 35? 25. Is that the government authority? The speed limit sign it is, isn't it? And they will ticket you and they will use your money wisely. And if you go home and you borrow your friend's CD of, uh, what's the girl's name? Jesus Take the Wheel? Carrie Underwood. Carrie Underwood CD. You borrow the CD and you say, I like this. I'm going to burn a copy for myself. And you look at the bottom of the CD and kind of curved around the edge is the copyright. Is that the governing authorities? Yes, it is. You see, part of the reason why we don't get persecuted and part of the reason why Christianity is not advancing very quickly in our culture, not the only reason, but part of the reason is is not always what we think it is. We think it's because we're all afraid to witness. And for some of us that's true. But part of the reason why Christianity is not advancing is because we have these obvious things that even unbelievers know we should do and we don't do them. Even unbelievers know you should obey the government even in the small things, even if they're not going to do anything to you for burning a copy of your Carrie Underwood CD. But when we don't do it, first of all, unbelievers see that and they can discount everything else that we say because we just do just like them. And secondly, even if they don't see it, God has the right to chastise us and withhold His blessing if we choose not to obey the simple instructions of His Word. We're to obey the government. Period. Now, There are lots of ways that that may apply to you. You think them out yourself. But let me give you this next sentence. For, why should we obey the government? For, there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. That's right. We give to Caesar what is Caesar. We obey the governing authorities here. We do it in 1 Peter. And the reason why we do it is because There's no authority except from God and those which exist are established by God. Do you believe that if the candidate who is not of your choice wins in November that that's God's will? Romans 13 says it is. There's no authority except from God. So whether it's Clinton or whether it's McCain or whether it's Obama or whether it's Huckabee, that person will be in place because God put them there. And if we choose to rebel against the government... We are rebelling against God, he says. Now, just back up from this and realize there are places in the Scriptures where people disobeyed the government. The Hebrew midwives disobeyed Pharaoh. The apostles disobeyed the Sanhedrin when they told them not to preach anymore. There are times when we have to obey God rather than man, but that doesn't include most of the stuff that we have problems with. Most of us aren't down on the 
town square preaching the gospel even if the police tell us that we're disturbing the peace. That's not most of our problem. Most of our problem is we're breaking laws just for our own comfort and self-gratification. So the general rule is obey the government. Serve the world by obeying the government. You can read what else Paul says there, but that's the main emphasis. And then serve the world by loving your neighbor. Love your enemies, obey the government, love your neighbor. Read verses 8-14 through 14 with me. Owe nothing to anyone except to love one another. For he who loves shall... Excuse me. For he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. For this, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And if there is any other commandment, it is summed up in this saying, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Isn't that what we said earlier? This New Testament overarching law of love is not superseding the Ten Commandments, it's simply summarizing them. All the second part of the Ten Commandments are summarized by this phrase, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. Do this knowing the time that it is already the hour for you to awaken from sleep. For now salvation is nearer to us than when we believe. In other words, you don't want to be caught chewing out your neighbor, criticizing your neighbor, stealing from your neighbor, hurting your neighbor, hating your neighbor, bad-mouthing your neighbor when Jesus comes back. Do you? Is that what you want to be doing when He comes back? And yet that's so often what we do. Driving down the road, we do it. In the privacy of our homes, talking to our wives, we do it. We're constantly bickering and whining about everybody else. Don't do it. The time is near for Jesus to come back. The night is almost gone and the day is near. Therefore, let us lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave properly as in the day not in carousing and drunkenness, drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality, not in strife and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make, make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lusts. He's saying the same thing there that he said earlier, isn't he? Consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to Christ. Here he just says it in a different way. Put on Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh. Don't give the flesh a foothold. Don't give the flesh a foothold by complaining about your neighbor bickering with your neighbor, arguing about your neighbor. Love your neighbor. Love your enemies. Obey the government. Serve the world. And in serving the world, you will be more likely to win the world. It's just the way God has designed it. Next, Paul says we should serve the brothers. Serve the brothers. Chapter 14 and chapter 15 through verse 13. Several things he brings up for our attention. One that he spends the entirety of chapter 14 on is that we should accept our weaker brother. We should accept the weaker brother. Now, we won't take time to read this whole chapter, but the main point of the chapter is this. All of us have taboos. You know, a taboo is something that uh, may or may not be wrong, but for you, you look at it and say, there's no way possible I could ever do that. can't do it. I can't eat that. I can't go there. I can't drink that. I can't do that. It's just not possible. Maybe it's the way I grew up. Maybe it's the way my mama always taught me. Maybe it's something that I have found in the church. Whatever it may be, there are certain things that you just don't do. Taboos. And Paul's going to talk about those because lots of them aren't biblical. 
And so he's going to talk about what to happen when one person has a taboo and another one in the church doesn't and how we handle that. But let me just ask you, kind of personal interaction time, what are some taboos that we as American Christians often have? Some things that we say just can't do that. Playing cards, all right? Like Uno or just any poker? Card. Any kind of cards, okay? I won't raise your hand and ask you how many of you play cards. <laughs> cards, what else? Alcohol. Alcohol. What else? <coughs> Cursing, okay? Cursing is probably one that's biblical across <coughs> the board, isn't it? That we should not let any unwholesome talk come out of our mouth. But certainly... We arbitrarily decide what words sometimes are okay and not. Paul uses some strong words, so we can throw that in there. What else? Okay, gambling. Okay, certain styles of worship can be a taboo. I cannot worship if there are drums. If they ever bring drums in this church, I'm leaving. Or if they start playing that organ again, I'm out of here. Either way, it could go either way for you. What else? In a previous era, dancing, maybe we should bring a little bit of that back. I'm not going to tell you what I think about those different things, and I'm going to urge you to study the Bible. But what I want to say to you is, what Paul is saying in chapter 14 is that sometimes we have religious taboos that may not be bad or wrong, but they're not necessarily biblical either. So we'll use the one that's obvious, no, let's not use the one that's as obvious. Um, I only have ten minutes left, so if I make you upset, I can make a quick exit. The Bible doesn't teach... No, hear me out on this. The Bible doesn't teach that... Well, that would be one thing you could do. I'm hard to find, though. The Bible doesn't teach um, that alcohol in itself is sinful. It teaches that we should not be drunk. That's very clear. But it doesn't teach in general that alcohol is sinful. It teaches that if you're led astray by alcohol, you're not wise. It teaches that if you're drunk, that that is sin. But it doesn't say never drink alcohol. In fact, it would be hard to reconcile that with all the teaching and talk about wine in the New Testament. Now, having said that, there are some of us in this room who don't drink alcohol. Not because we don't like it, but because we've made a definite moral, religious, social, otherwise decision that I will not do that. I'm I'm in that group. I don't drink. But what Paul is saying here is that taboos like that we need to be very careful about because we can take something that we've decided that's not set in stone in the Bible and try to apply it to everybody else and end up end up hurting people, creating division or obscuring the gospel. And that's what he's saying here. Notice verse 14. The taboo that he discusses is not alcohol but food, particularly food that at one time was used and cut up and processed in some pagan temple. Okay, So they would process a bull in the pagan temple, they would dance around it, they would burn part of it, and then they would cut the rest of it up and sell it at market. And so some of the Christians are saying, I can't eat that, that's food sacrificed to idols. And other Christians were like, it's just meat. You know, you're not worshiping the idol, don't worry about it. And so that was their taboo. And Paul is going to say in verse 14 that the taboo about not eating the meat is not a biblical taboo. I know and am convinced in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself. So, 
The meat isn't unclean simply because of where it came from or who chopped it up. He knows that. He's convinced of that. But then he goes on to say that though he knows that in reality there's nothing wrong with that meat, he realizes that some people have a real problem with that. Note, again, verse 14, "...but to him who thinks anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. For if because of food your brother is hurt, you're no longer walking according to love. Do not destroy with your food him for whom Christ died. Therefore do not let what for you is is a good thing be spoken of as evil." For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. So what he's saying is, we have taboos. You may know enough of your Bible to know that certain things that people choose not to do aren't in the Bible, like alcohol or like food sacrifice to idols. But that doesn't give you the right to run around saying, you're just a dope if you don't think that you can drink wine. That's not in the Bible. If you run around trying to to shove that in people's faces, you're the one who has a problem, not the person who's a teetotaler. It's you that has a problem. And so his point is, listen, I'm not going to eat that meat either. If it's going to cause somebody in the church to have big problems, to stumble, I'm not going to eat it. Or if it's going to make them think that somehow the gospel has lost its power because now we've got to squabble over all these little food things, if we're going to have to focus on that instead of on the main things, I'm not going to do it either. It just will be a non-issue. We just won't do it, and we won't talk about it, and we won't have to worry about it. That's why I don't drink alcohol. Not because I think the Bible teaches that I can't, but because I know that a lot of people would stumble over that. Unbelievers would, and people in the church would. And I don't want to spend my time haggling over that when I could be preaching the gospel to them in the church and to them outside. And so what Paul is saying is there are taboos that aren't biblical, There are some people who don't understand the Bible as well as they might who think that those things are more important than they are, but we need to let those people alone and not get in their face. The strong, the people who know the whole truth, should defer to the weak. That's why I don't drink. Now, let me me, uh, say this to you, um, taking Paul's argument a little bit further. He doesn't want the gospel to be obscured. That's the thing. And so he doesn't want the church squabbling over secondary issues so that the gospel will be primary. But what if you're in a church where the majority of the people in the church are saying to you, if you have a glass of wine, you cannot be a Christian. Being a teetotaler is is part of being a Christian and nobody who's not is, is a Christian. What do you do in that case? If you're the pastor, what do you do in that case? Well, one pastor I heard said, if you're in a church where they equate teetotaling with Christianity, then you should take them out to dinner and order a glass of wine to the glory of God. Just to prove that the gospel is not about eating or drinking. So there is a time to bring this up if people are equating it with the gospel. But if it's a secondary issue where people are just worried about it and they don't know that it's really the right thing to do, just just let it be. Accept the weaker brother. You give up what you can give up to help others to be able to grow in grace. And he gives the example of Jesus in chapter 15 to show us that. Verse 7, Accept one another just as Christ also accepted us to the glory of God. Christ laid aside His glory. He laid aside His dignity and the worship that existed in heaven so that He might come and accept us. 
if there are things that you need to lay aside, whether they be things that you think other people just don't understand, whether they be these issues of taboos, if there are things you need to lay aside, you lay them aside for the good of your church. Maybe it's music. You're one of the people that gets upset about this kind of music or that or is always saying, we need to do this, we need to do this, we need to do this. You need to lay that aside if it's creating problems in the church. Whatever it may be, accept the weaker brother and let there be peace in the church. Two last things. Paul, speaking of service to God, is going to remind us of his own service in the past. He speaks of his faithfulness. We won't look at that in detail. He speaks then of his future plans at the end of chapter 15. I know, 29, that when I come to you, I will come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. He's longing to preach in Rome. He still is. And he says, when I come, it will be with the blessing of Jesus. That's just an astonishing statement when you consider how Paul got to Rome. Paul didn't get to Rome on a, on a trade ship. Paul didn't arrive in Rome with all of his entourage of missionaries. Paul didn't arrive at Rome and preach in the town square. Paul arrived, Paul arrived in Rome in shackles. And yet he could say, I know when I get there, it will be with the blessing of Jesus. It's a good reminder that God works all things together for the good of His people. So the service of Paul, and then finally, he gives this long list of unknown servants. I was going to point out all the names to you. There are 20 or 30 of them, Phoebe, Prisca, Aquila, and so on in chapter 16. We might almost overlook this chapter because it's just Paul giving a bunch of personal greetings to his friends, most of whom we've never heard of. Maybe you've heard of Prisca or Priscilla and Aquila. You've certainly heard of Timothy in verse 21, but my guess is that you couldn't tell us much about Asyncretus in verse 14 or Herodian in verse 11 or Eponidas in verse 5. probably don't know who those folks are. And I think perhaps that's why God included them here. Just a last reminder as we think about serving the Lord that most of the servants of the Lord are anonymous. None of us are going to be famous. No one's going to walk out of here today and have people write our names down in a book and, and speak about what happened on February 23rd and say it was the most amazing thing. No one's going to remember us 200 years or even 100 years from now. But these people, Phoebe, Urbanus, Julia, Gaius, Lucius, and so on, these people are the ones who made Paul's ministry happen. And these people are the ones who made the Roman church famous, as we saw that it was in chapter 1. Just the no-name servants doing what God had called them to do. And it's an encouragement to me never to underestimate your role in the church, your part in the body. Whatever it is that God has called you to do in serving the church or in serving the world or in obeying your government. It's not an insignificant thing, though you may never be named. Your obedience to the things of the Scriptures, to the things that we've seen in chapters 12 through 16, will be a part of God's great plan. Not to make Paul famous or the church at Rome famous mainly, but to make his son famous. And generations will be blessed or cursed by how the Thebes and Urbanuses and Aristobuluses of this day serve. Are you going to be faithful 
could your pastor, could your deacons, could your elders, could the leaders in your church write your name on a list like that and say, greet Mary, who's worked hard for you. Greet Eponidas, my beloved. Greet Tryphena and Tryphosa, workers in the Lord. Can that be said about you? And if it is, that's enough. Faithfulness of the unknown servants is enough. To that end, I hope that our study today has been an exercise in faithfulness. I hope I've been faithful to teach and you've been faithful to listen and think and apply. And if we have been, then this little meeting of no-name people have gone some way towards making the name of Jesus famous in the world. I want to pray that it would have. Father, thank You for this time. Thank You for this people. Thank You for the invitation for the churches that are represented. Thank You most of all for Your Son who loved us and gave Himself for us, who demonstrates His love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, even us. We pray that You make us faithful, that You make us servants, that we would give our lives a living sacrifice acceptable to you as our spiritual service of worship and that in doing so we would contribute just a little bit to the fame of the name of Jesus in this world. And we pray in his name and for his sake. Amen.